Hey everybody, welcome to this week's show. It is Nick Bradley here. And today we're going to get into a topic that I haven't really covered on the show for a long time. For those of you who have listened all the way from the beginning, like we're in 300 and something episodes now, but in the very early days, I talked a lot about balance and the concept of whether balance really exists. I, I sort of personally believe that we have seasons where we have to focus on one area more than others. So one season might be more on the business than the next season might be more on our family and relationships and things like that. Other people think that, you know, you can have balance at all times across all the important areas of our lives. And, you know, my personal thing is I think you can have degrees of that, but there's always something or, you know, or a couple of things that take more of your attention and focus. And when I started this podcast, you know, it was called Scale Up Your Business, but we also talked a lot about scaling up your life. And today, my guest is an expert in this space, and we're going to talk a lot about what it truly means to be able to have a great business, to have, you know, a fantastic career, but also how you can enjoy the life of your dreams at the same time. My guest today is Perdeep Sanger. He is a strategist. That's probably the best way to describe him, but he, you know, he works on business strategy. He does some stuff on exiting, how to build value in your company. But what I think he's truly passionate about is this idea of, of trying to create this balance across multiple areas. And he, he does focus a lot on helping men achieve that. That's his specialty. But you know, if you are a woman listening to the show today, there are certainly some nuggets here which are going to be applicable to you because let's be frank here, it's not just something that men face. We all face this challenge of balance. You know, how can we be a great father, mother, you know, husband, you know, wife, whatever that is, how can we be that and also have a successful business as an entrepreneur? How can we look after our health, but at the same time be intentional with other things that are important? You know, the things that light us up, our hobbies, the things that we enjoy doing outside of all these other areas so that we have time for us. When a person self-reflects on those 10 elements, what ends up happening is that there's an intersection. They will find that, okay, these 10 elements will intersect, or maybe there's a complete gap, or maybe some of those elements are completely missing, are completely missing altogether, and they need to figure those out or establish those. And so for me, you know, that comes down to wealth as well. It comes under, you know, how we think about that. It's about our energy. It's about, as I mentioned, those important relationships, including those intimate relationships. It's about parenting. It's about our free time. And I suppose ultimately it's about our passion for life. So this episode is an interesting one because even though we do talk a lot about scaling business, we very, very quickly pivot, transition into the broader context of this. So it's very much about how do you scale your business, your career, and how do you scale your life? But this is something that I think a lot of family business owners need to understand is that there's so much opportunity out there if you actually do it properly and actually get the proper structure in place. So sit back, enjoy this episode with my good friend, Pradeep. You'll get a lot out of it. I certainly did. In fact, it reminded me of the good old days of Scale Up Your Business, uh, something that I look back fondly with. But the important message is you've got to have some degree of balance, whatever that looks like for you if you were gonna have a life that you absolutely love and enjoy. Here we go, welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Perdeep Sanger. Hey everyone, it's Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for another week. Today we're gonna to get into all things business growth, scaling, and we're gonna to touch on exiting, one of my favorite topics. But we're gonna to focus today's conversation a lot on family businesses. You know, And the reason for that is People have aspirations to kind of build these things that can be sold to private equity or become corporates and IPO and all that sort of thing. But most businesses start off with an entrepreneurial idea. Idea, And today I am very, very grateful to have with me Perdeep Sanger, who's coming in all the way from Canada to discuss this very important topic. Now, welcome to the show. And my first question for you, Perdeep, is have I pronounced your last name correctly? Yeah, Nick, thanks for having me in. Yes, you have. <laughs> I have a there's a there's a trend on this show where I um I have a, a brilliant ability to stuff up people's names. And there is a there's a I'll tell you this very quickly. I had to go and um speak at this event many, many years ago in Sri Lanka and I had to hand out awards. And I thought, you know what, it might be ten awards, twenty awards. It ended up having having been seven hundred 
awards. Oh, it was like literally giving out people their diploma. And of course, you can imagine in Sri Lanka, the names are very colourful. <laughs> what ended up happening after about two hours is everyone like no one knew who was coming up in the end because I just couldn't get it right. So I, I have this this uh, awareness, let's call it. <laughs> oh, that must have been an experience. Oh, geez, 700 people. Oh, my God. Well, you know what's really I, I cool about it is they came, um, it was in the capital city there, but they came from the mountain areas and all sorts. And I didn't quite appreciate at the time that um, some of these diplomas we were giving out were like the first time these people were ever getting any acknowledgement for their education. And you know, Sri Lanka is not a, a third world country, but it's definitely got, you know, developing needs. So it was quite a privilege to do that. And, you know, there's this guy from Australia mucking up their names. Yeah, especially <laughs> with the accent too. Works, doesn't it? Well, listen, let's get into your story, Pradeep. Now, we, we got connected recently by a mutual friends, and we have a lot of, I think, similarities in terms of what we focus on in business. You have some, some very interesting ways of thinking about things. And I love the fact that you focus a lot on leadership and you focus on the identity of who that entrepreneur or business leader needs to be. But specifically today, I want to kind of get into this idea of how family businesses grow and, and transition. But let's start off with your story. How did you get into this? Oh, wow. So I, I grew up, um, my parents were immigrants. They immigrated from India back in the 70s. And, and I, I grew up on an orchard. That's pretty much where I start. Or I grew up with my parents. They didn't have any formal education. They just knew how to work hard. So when they came over, because they were agriculture in the agriculture, you can say, labor back home, that's what they fit into when they came to Canada. So they just started working on an orchard. My brother and I, were literally in an apple bin when my parents would be picking apples. That was kind of like a daycare. <laughs> really? What does yeah, that mean, yeah. being in an apple bin? You were literally like, what, what throwing away we're, bad apples from the bin? Or? Or, or no, we're literally just, my, that That was our playpen. Oh, so when my it. parents didn't, yeah, when my parents didn't have a, a babysitter for us, my brother and I were actually in the apple bin because that was our daycare. And so we grew up on the orchard and then uh, eventually, my parents saved up enough money to buy their own and then got into the agricultural business, you can say, technically. Uh, we still have that family business, although we pared it down significantly since my dad passed about four and a half, almost five years ago. Um, but my parents said, you know what, we came to this country for you to get an education, even though we were in business. So I went and went to multiple different business schools, got in the corporate world. I was in primarily banking. Um, and really focused in the credit union space because that's where my values aligned. My brother grew up in the in the traditional banking space and wealth and corporate finance. And we always had interesting conversations where I'd be sitting there happy and he'd be pissed off. Um, so, and, and we kind of went through that. How did you both get into that? I mean, like both going into a similar lane, was that something that was suggested by your parents that that was a pathway to go in terms of building wealth and things like that? Absolutely not. My parents wanted us to be either primarily me. They wanted me to be a doctor. Okay. Yeah. So I, I actually did biochemistry. My brother actually did chemistry. He was a chemist before he went into the financial space. So we did the science route and then switched over into finance and business and kind of grew from there, which actually worked out very well because we had a science background, yeah. which gave us the analytical skills to be able to work well in business. And so my brother went down, you can say, the wealth side and the corporate finance. And so he's really good with numbers. I tended to lean more towards the all the other elements of business, which was leadership, marketing, operations. My goal is to be a CEO of a major corporation. And so I led every major division. And so when I left as an executive, it was just one of those spur of the moment decisions. I was just kind of tired. My values, I you know, I, not that they didn't align at that time, but I was just kind of like, you know what, I, I, I'm sitting here with people around the, the boardroom table. People are talking, but not a lot of action, not a lot of alignment and values. And I was, you could say, a point in time in my life where I needed a change. So I literally just, I told my wife that I was going to quit. And she said, are you serious? But let's, let's go back into that world a little bit, because it's not dissimilar yeah. to mine, certainly before I got into private equity. But what, wh why do you think, reflecting back, right? Why do you think um, all those people sitting around the boardroom were not taking action? Well, maybe I should rephrase that. It's not that they weren't taking action. They weren't taking action at the level and the pace that I was comfortable okay. with. And I want, and I excelled at. So I was a go-getter. I was the youngest, you can say, person on the executive team. And I was constantly about making change and having an impact. 
And a lot of the other people were comfortable. They were getting their salaries. They were getting their bonuses. They weren't really taking a look at future opportunities. My background is also in innovation. Uh, and so I did a lot of work there. And I said, okay, there's so much opportunity out there. There's so much more we can do. There's tons of opportunity, but just people were complacent. And so that was one of the things. And it, the key moment for me was when they were talking about or making decisions about how we wanted to value our clients at that time, but the decisions behind the scenes were not aligning with that. And I said, I, in my mind, it was like, okay, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You know, Corporately, we have these values and we say we do this, but we're making decisions on a completely different, you can see, different factors, which didn't sell, sit well with me. I was truly wanted to do what's in the best interest of all parties, including our clients. And that's, that's really what sealed it for me. And I said, I'm going to I'm going to build my own organization with my own values and really live to them and the, and the principles. So give me a, give me a time check on this. So how long were you in the world of corporate before you made that call? 14 years. So, so you know, what's interesting about this part of the conversation, right? And I, I'm somewhat privileged the fact that I, I had corporate, then private equity, and then what I call more entrepreneurial kind of exposure experience. Right. And if I look back to the corporate world, which seems a long time ago now, because private equity sits right in the middle of that. Um, there's an interesting thing that happened, right? And I can see this clearly now, but didn't see it as clear when I was there. And there's a bit where you're going up through the ranks, right? And you just don't know anything, right? Like you, you might end up being a manager and then a senior manager, and then you might become a director or something and you're learning, you're learning, you're learning. But there's a point, certainly for me, where I'm looking at the decisions being made once I'd got to a certain level of experience and competency and thinking, why the fuck are people making these decisions? Do you know what I mean? Like in the beginning, you just don't know right? because you think, oh, no. I, I, that person's not performing. I need to fire them or whatever, whatever you've been exposed to. But then after a certain point, you look and see what well, that just doesn't make any sense. And that, and for me, just to finish this part of, 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 the, of the, the story, I ended up starting to get sacked from those corporate jobs because I would start to call out um, these decisions, which were just crazy or to your point before were people just wanted to be comfortable. So they made decisions for their own self-interest mm -hmm. versus what was the right decision in that entity. Yep. Is that, does that yeah, resonate? Oh, absolutely resonates. And I think one of the things, and I, I had to keep myself in check a little bit because I also didn't want to be known as that young whippersnapper that was coming in and just, you know, coming in with the ego and pretending like I knew it all because there was a lot of growth that I had to do as well, especially on the people side. But I soon realized that I was outgrowing a lot of the people within the organization, just because I, when people were sitting at home watching TV, I was reading, I was doing programs, I was doing courses, I had my businesses on the side, I was doing things. Um, and I'm a huge consumer of information and strategy and tactics and training and skill sets. So I just outpaced them. And so there was a point in time for me where I said, okay, I got to stop with the humbleness and the humility. Mm. Interesting. Because I'm not being that egotistical person. That's not who I am. My skill set has just advanced to a point where I know I need to move on. So it's that a balance, key... though, isn't it? It's a balance because, yeah. you know, as I, as, as I think about this for me, like, you know, I definitely came through with, you know, big ego, bigger ego than, than what I could probably cash in. Right. <laughs> um, and then there's a point where you start to realize that and you have to be a bit more humble. I like the way you said that actually. And then there's a point where you realize that's not helping anybody, right? Because you're playing small just to fit in or whatever else or not to. And then there's a point where you sort of say stuff, it, right? But what, what I'm hearing here a little bit is you had entrepreneurial characteristics all the way through that. Um, did you identify those things early or now again, as you look back, they were more prevalent as you see them in that, in that lens? Uh, yeah, I definitely had the entrepreneurial, you could say, personality traits and characteristics because I consider myself an intrapreneur in yep. the corporate world. I was always the guy. They used to call me the guy that used to blow things up. And so I would go there. And even if it was performing well, I wanted it to perform better. So we, it, we, it was always about, okay, how do we get the more, more juice out of this machine? And how do we actually continue to grow and expand and do better things? So that was always part of my spirit. Um, and I, I still remember when I was a kid, I think this was around eight or nine years old. I, there was a moment where I don't know where I got this from. I'm like, you know what? I want to be the CEO of my own company. Hmm. And so that, that stuck with me. And that, that moment when I made the decision to walk in and quit, that was a moment that I was replaying in my head as a kid. Funny, isn't it? Funny. I, I often think, and, and you know, you've studied a lot of this stuff probably from the mindset work that you've done as well. Um, 
there are certain pathways that are already kind of there for us, right? But we don't always see them. Okay. And I'm sure there's a, a scientific way of looking at this and maybe a metaphysical way of looking at this, but you have these, sometimes you, they come in dreams, right? Sometimes they become, if you meditate, you'll see these things and you think, where the hell did that come from? Right. And it's almost like, um, oh God, what's that, um, that saying deja vu, you know, that feeling like you've been somewhere before, but you haven't, or you don't think you have, you have, have you had that experience? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the core things. And this is where we kind of go off the track of business, but I think it's very much related yeah. to business. But I've been, uh, I was fortunate enough that my grandfather, who immigrated over from India as well, was a very spiritual man. And so he taught me meditation and mindfulness at a very young age. So I was practicing that probably seven, eight years old. And I had these experiences. I used to do things like, and, and kind of test them out, lucid dreaming. Um, have these moments, for example, where, yeah, I could foresee things that ended up happening in, in some particular time in my life. So I absolutely believe in that. Um, and I think that was through, you can say, practical uh, meditation, mindfulness experiences, whether it's through our lineage. For example, my great grandfather was a spiritual teacher in India for 60 years. Mm, interesting. So it, it was a part of our family to go through that. Um, so I do believe in that fully. I do believe that we have a path that our soul follows. And I think if we're lucky enough to be able to find and align with it, we got to move forward with it full speed. What's well, actually, I mean, and we will get on back on track, but this is, this comes up a lot all the time in different conversations. What What's going on there? Right. Cause, cause the, again, I'll just contextualize this with, with a side story. I remember when I was in the world of private equity, everything was controlled, right? So you were taught to act and think in a certain way. Right. And it was very, useful in that environment. I imagine it's probably the same as if you're in a military environment in, you know, the battlefield type of stuff, right? Don't, don't think too far outside the box, just operate within this framework. Okay. When I left that world and I started to explore more personal development myself, meditation, um, I, I, I started getting different results and experiencing different things around me, right? More awareness, more, um, connection with maybe how I was feeling about things versus just head. So what, what, in your experience, because you've done this for a lot longer than me, what, what's going on there when, when people start to understand this about themselves and they start to have that appreciation? Well, I think there's a number of things that happen there. I think one of the things is that we have, as human beings, we have these senses, right? And we go through life with these five senses, typically, which is, you know, sight, taste, touch, hearing, smell. But there's other senses as well that we have not fully, you can say, identified or some people have experienced it where they get this sense of maybe there's somebody around me, but they haven't seen them. There's just a feeling there. There's this form of energy that we have as human beings called electromagnetic energy, which is energy. You can say it's a form of light, for example, but there's been a lot of studies that show that when we talk about people's auras, right? Yeah. All these things are so science. And you can say this woo woo stuff back from the day, the spirituality is now intersecting where they're actually showing this. So I, I fully believe that we have senses that we don't tap into. And part of that sense is being able to sense whether it's the near future or far future. But if you take a look at it from a, a physics perspective, right? What they say is, or quantum physics, we're multidimensional beings, right? We're just living in this one dimension right now. All, all time happens all the time. And there's no concept of time, which means that there's infinite possibilities that are happening at this particular moment. So I could be living we're taking a look at it from this perspective as my eight-year-old self from the past, and we could be connecting in some way, shape, or form. So I do believe that we have that ability as human beings to be able to do that. And the number one thing, and this, because I've had the privilege of having mentors, spiritual mentors throughout my years, one of my spiritual teach, uh, mentors is, um, he, he has been trained, he's one of the nine grand masters in the world that were trained by the lineage of Lao Tzu, for example. And so the yin yang symbol, for example, that whole teaching there is that the way we live as human beings, we have shut off our senses because we are so busy. We are consumed with the physical being that we forget to really tap in to these senses that we have lost touch with. And, and because we've numbed ourselves, if you take a look at, and, and again, this is from my mm. personal experience and and beliefs. If you take a look at what Einstein said, he said, everything is energy and energy is everything. It's as simple as that. So here you have a scientist, one of the most renowned scientists saying that we're all made up of energy. 
We're all made up of frequency. Um, it's when we tap into that frequency that we are able to see things and do things that we might not normally be able to do. And one of the ways to do that is by creating empty space. And the only way to create empty space is if we actually stop or slow down through practices such as mindfulness and meditation, where we allow our minds to actually be able to open up and create that empty space. Otherwise, we have a thousand thoughts running through mm, our mind. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've definitely experienced this. I'm, I'm going to link this to leadership in a second, but <clears throat> I'm very curious, you know, as I said, you've been practicing for some time. What sort of state do you need to get yourself into? Because, you know, let me, let me I suppose, explain the question a little bit. Um, I, I see lots of people, particularly leaders of businesses who are frenetic, you know, literally like everything is stress, 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 pace, stress, pace, stress, uh, intoxicating to some extent, overwhelming for sure. Okay. And that's obviously not a great way to live, let alone run a company, right? What, what, what specific things have you found work or more importantly, are there different things that work for different people to be able to get into that state? Yeah, so the if I'm going to break it down and simplify it, you yep. want to be in what they call an alpha theta state, which is the brainwave frequency of your that your mind can actually go through before it goes into delta, which is sleep. That those two brainwaves, alpha and theta, are very powerful. That's when you you go in and you can actually get into. You, people think of that as intuition, typically, or you know they've been hip and struck by this these phenomenal ideas. And so I learned this at a very young age because I started to study Leonardo da Vinci and Einstein and all these great inventors. And one of the common things that they used to use in terms of a technique is what they call the think and pause technique, which is taking a whole bunch of information and facts and figures and then just pause. Some of them would just sit on basically in a dark room with blackout, nothing, no light, no anything, and just allow their minds to be completely empty. And then they'd be hit with these thoughts of, you can say brilliantness or eureka moments, right? These aha moments. And so that is very common. That's, that's something I experienced at a very young age. So for example, Nick, I had a photographic, I taught myself how to have photographic memory, speed, speed reading, all these things to accelerate my mind. And in my, in my academic years, I can ace a test without having to study. And people thought, okay, how to pretty pure genius. How do you do this? And I was like, no, I don't have a special gift. There's nothing special about me. I just learned how to tap into my mind and my body that most people were not able to do just because they just didn't have access to, whether it was meditation or mindfulness at that time or other practices to advance their skill set. So that's kind of a long-winded answer there. But those mm. alpha and theta brainwaves, which is a calm state, which is not a high-stress state, are more powerful for creativity. And we actually teach people this because we teach people high performance. And part of high performance is creativity and problem solving. And you are more creative and you have better ability to solve problems when you have those moments of alpha and theta. Okay. And if someone's listening to this, and I do want to segue into, into leadership a bit more in a sec, but if someone's leading to listening to this and they're thinking, I just want to start, where do they go just to start? Well, yeah, there's so many places to start. I know that it's overwhelming, isn't it? Like when you think about there's apps and there's books and there's different styles of mindfulness yes. and meditation, that, that in its own right becomes you know, overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if we take a look, so there's, for, for me, there's a distinction between meditation and mindfulness yep. and, and that distinction. And there's an overlap. That distinction for me is that mindfulness is being in the present moment, fully aware, right? Paying attention to where your thought is going, where your focus is going. That's mindfulness. You're opening up your senses, right? You're, you're able to hear things. Now you're feeling things like simple example is if you sit there for a moment and actually just concentrate on your ears, you know, are your ears feeling something? Do you feel a tingle, right? Or you focus on a certain part of your body, you might actually feel the pulse in that part of the body. So by concentrating and through mindfulness, you can actually start to experience mindfulness and be more in the present moment. Meditation is what most people think of when they think of these, and which is cross-legged, and you're sitting in a cave like a monk, right? And meditating. And I would say, start simple. Um, I don't always recommend apps. Um, I do think it does work for some people. There's a lot of science to back it up because they have shown that it can bring you into a certain brainwave, but now you're becoming dependent on technology where the whole point is you should be able to be able to be in a meditative state 
without technology. So where I would start is just sit down. If you want to use an app, sit down and use an app, but just do it for two minutes. Close your eyes and just listen. If, if it's an app, you can listen to specific tunes and really just, you're, you're just being present. That's all you're being. Close, close your eyes. That's my recommendation. What ends up happening is this is an exercise just like anything else. It is a practical exercise. It's not something that you can get good at overnight. It requires skill and it requires time. But I can promise you as you go through the phases, once you go from two minutes of doing it to three minutes to five minutes, and you don't have to be a yogi and do it for 10 hours, right? It, this isn't about length. This isn't a, a, about, I hear people say, yeah, you know what? I did a four hour meditation the other day. And it's like, it's almost like a competition. Um, you don't have to do that. What you're just trying to do is get into a state. So you're relieving yourself all of those day-to-day -day thoughts and you're creating space. You're creating this emptiness so you can create new things. That's how manifestation works. But I want, I want to make this point, Nick, is because a lot of people, when we don't teach this ourselves, we actually have partners. One of our partners is a professor at the local university that we have who teaches mindfulness and he's a phenomenal man. He's been doing this for years, originally from India. And, and what we do though, is what I hear, especially with a lot of high performance individuals, and we work with both men and women, but predominantly men, 85% of our clients that we work with are men and they're high performance, high stress level, high expectations. And what they say is, you know, Pradeep, I can't sit down for five minutes. I can't sit down for five minutes and practice meditation. It just doesn't work. I go crazy. I said, well, that's why you have to do it, A. But the second thing here is it's just like working out. You can't expect to have a crazy, hectic lifestyle and then be really great at meditation. And the reason why I say this is it's like working. It's like trying to lose weight or get fit. Mm, okay. if, if, if you're eating a bunch of junk food throughout the day and you think that working out is going to solve your problems, give you a six pack, it's not going to work. Meditation and mindfulness is a lifestyle. It's not a practice that's there for five or 10 minutes. And so that's where the Western, you can say, approach to meditation or mindfulness has really misconstrued it. It's a way of being rather than just a specific five-minute exercise. Yeah, okay. It makes a lot of sense. And I want to I ask the question about um, effective leadership in the context of those leaders who have this as part of their lifestyle versus and this is from your personal experience the ones that don't right just just so we can paint a picture a little bit here for people listening as to what that could feel like if they started to get more intentional about this sort of thing oh sure yeah so if, if i take a look at the commonalities between people that actually go through these practices and it's not just mindfulness meditation it's things like daily walks for example yeah even spending more time with family they are a lot calmer. They have more peace in their life, even though they are living high-performance lives. Secondly, their health is better. By far, their health is way better. And when I say that is because when you reduce your stress, you improve your health. There's a direct correlation there. We know that for sure. My wife works in this area. She's in medicine, so she works with our clients to help them improve their health. So there's that second element. Um, the other part is emotional, you can say mastery, which is a key element in business. Being able to master your emotions, which means, okay, what's the definition? What do you mean by mastering emotions? It means that you are able to reflect on your emotions and actually be able to shift them on command. That's emotional mastery. So you're not getting stuck in anger, sadness, or frustration. What ends up happening is you feel it and you can automatically shift it and you can do that consistently throughout the day. And so by doing those practices, you're going to be better. A person is going to be better at that. And what ends up happening then is if you have better emotional ma mastery, you, ha you have better decision-making capabilities and problem-solving capabilities. And then that ultimately leads to higher creativity. Got it. Got it. Right. Okay. So, so all those things come into play when it comes to leadership. And especially, here's the other thing. Our, and there's a lot of science to, to back this up now. Some of it's been done by HeartMath. There's other institutions. As I mentioned, our, uh, Nick, I, you and I talked about this. I didn't talk about this uh, on the podcast yet, but we built an organization that was around the science of high performance and emotions. And we didn't do this, the studies ourselves, but we had connections and direct affiliations and partnerships with organizations that have done studies such on emotions, for example, 
and the energy that comes with emotions. And there is strong evidence to show that, yeah, when you are in a better emotional state, you actually radiate a level of energy that other people absorb around you. So as a leader, if you are, and it really all comes down to emotions. And there's two reasons for that. A is because emotions display energy, they give energy and you absorb energy. But B, you have greater control over your emotions than your mind. Now that's kind of counterintuitive. Oh, for most how, how, unpack that. Well, because if you take a look at it at any given time, scientists don't know fully for sure, but we have anywhere from 15,000 to 80 plus thousand thoughts a day. How the heck are you going to control those thoughts? Abs there's no friggin' way that you're going to be able to master all of those thoughts because there's just far too many. And many of those thoughts are at an unconscious level, right? Pre pre predominantly 95% are at an unconscious level. But what you have more control over is your emotions, because emotions, you feel them, you're, you're fully aware of them, you can categorize them into specific emotions, whether it's anger, excitement, fear, for example, happiness, sadness, you can categorize them. So you can actually have more control over that. And you have more control over your emotions than you think, because a lot of it has to do with your physiology. You can use your body, hence, again, mindfulness and meditation practices to actually influence your emotions. So that's why it's so it's so powerful to use these practices and these way, this way of being and way of life to be able to shift your leadership, which then ultimately shifts your results. Cool. And I'll share again something here because it's you just spark something. I remember when I was uh, doing some of the deals in private equity, we did quite a lot of this practice, different different ways of explaining it. So how you've explained it, but basically the context was the same, and it was all about uh, managing emotional states. And I bring that up because if I think about the, the people that probably you work with and I work with these days, and they're going into scaling their companies, you know, building to an exit, the level of, a, of emotional roller coaster, dare I put it that way, is off the charts, right? You know, because you're going to go through things you've never experienced before, highs, lows, sometimes on the same day. And this type of stuff is super important when you get into that world, as it is just generally in living. So thank you for unpacking that. That was very, very well said. Yeah, my pleasure. So let's let's segue a little bit into into business now, a bit more into kind of the the practicalities of that. So that sort of first part of our conversation today really was about personal leadership and leadership in general. But as we as we start talking about growing and scaling a business, and and specifically, we'll talk about family businesses here because I know you've got a lot of experience in that space. How do you bring your work, like you know the stuff that we've just touched on, plus other things, into those environments? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think the, the benefit that we have, and this is something that I identified early on, Nick, is it, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a story. When I was 17 years old, yeah. I was a personal trainer and I, I was managing employees at 16. I was an academic tutor. I, from day one, I loved helping people. But what I realized when I was a personal trainer was I was giving them, and I was a fanatic for fitness at that time. And so when I would help someone and I put a program together for them, 80% of the people would not execute. They would not go forward and move through it, even though I'd be putting this fitness plan and this meal plan. I'd be like, why are you not doing this? You have everything here that you need to do to get fit or lose weight or feel better, whatever it is. That's when it clicked into me that it was behind the scenes, their emotions, their identity, their belief systems, their family support network, their social circle, all these other things that actually influenced their ability to get the results more than the actual strategy and plan itself. So this is why we incorporate the full circle approach in the way we work, because when I left the corporate world, and I, I incorporated this into my, you can say, corporate training as well, when I was working with um, my staff and my leadership team. But when I left, I soon realized, because I didn't want to, in all honesty, when I left, I didn't want to associate myself in the personal development space. I wanted to be strictly business. But what I soon realized was the same problem that I had when I was 17 was these people that I was working with, all their family life, all these other things is what hindered them from actually executing. So I said, okay, I get the signs. I understand. I was a little bit thick in the skull because the universe was giving me these signals. And I said, I'm going to move forward with that. And that's what accelerated our results and ultimately our business results. So that's why when we work with people, we work with them holistically. And we, when you say, how do we bring this in? Because one of the first questions I ask them is, tell me what you want your life to be like in five or 10 years, and specifically around your emotions. It throws a lot of people off because they're like, 
pretty W2F. Like we're here. We, we want you to help us grow our business. Why are you asking us about our emotions? Well, it's very important because at the end of the day, if we work five years or whatever that is to a certain point and you still don't feel the way you want to feel, then it's all for nothing. I don't care how much money you've made. At the end of the day, everything that we do, excuse me, <clears throat> is based on feelings and emotions. And so that's what drives our decision making. That's what drives our ability to grow our business. And so we got to figure that out early on in the process. It throws people off. And I think that's one of the reasons why we get a, a higher success rate is because it makes people think. Now we're not just talking about money. We're talking about emotions. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about, you know, okay, what are their dreams and their goals? Because a lot of people have forgotten about that as they go through business. Right. And you, I'm, Nick, I'm sure you've seen this, right? They, they want to make X amount of money or they want to have that yacht or whatever that is, but for what? Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I think I, I shared this with you when we first met, I asked three questions and the first one is about, you know, if, if someone could write a check for their business today, like obviously my space is, is very much focused on the, on the exit of a company, you know, what does that number need to be? But the second question is why does that matter? Right. Ultimately, which, which is more of a grounding question than anything else. And then the third part of that is, is what you're doing now going to get you there, right? And that's not just about the number, that's about what sits around the number. And quite, quite frankly, the reason I ask it in that way and where I go deep into is on the why is because you're 100% right. Like a lot of people who, who first come into my world say they want to sell their company for a billion dollars or something like that. And I'm like, why is that important? And you know what? I haven't even heard a good answer to that question yet. No, no, I'll give you an example. There's just, there, <laughs> there's just one. Yeah, there's this, I'll give you a prime example. There's a one gentleman, he was making $10 million a year, a young guy in his thirties doing very well. And he wanted to scale his company to a hundred million dollars. And I said, okay, that's doable. You got a good business model. There's a lot of opportunity. The market is prime. You could do that. But let me ask you this. What are the top three to five emotions you want to feel when you hit a hundred million? And he had a family and so forth. And uh, he, it took a while for him to write it down, but one of them, one of them was peace and content. And I said, this is really interesting because this is, this is a great emotion, but how much stress do you have right now making $10 million? And he's like, I have a whole lot of freaking stress. I said, okay, well, we can work on that. But let me ask you this. How much stress do you think you'll have making a hundred million? You think your stress is going to be reduced or you think it's going to be increased? And when they click for him, that, wow, you know, it's, it's not that, you know, he's going to have to throw away everything in his life, but the chances are that he's going to be more stressed making hundred million dollars because there's a lot more complexity involved, for example, or there's things that might go wrong. There's higher stakes involved. He realized that what he was trying to achieve wasn't exactly what he was trying to achieve. So we worked that number down a little bit and he think, was more aware of that. I think, I think, you know, we, we talked about this, you know, when we, when we touched on mindfulness and, how the world is set up for us probably not to be present, right? To be distracted. So when you, when you ask a business owner that type of question, and I totally get where you're coming from and I'll, and I'll explain why in a sec. Um, and you ask the question about their emotions. I mean, what happens if they say, I have no idea how to answer that. I have no idea even how to connect with that question. Mm -hmm. because a lot of people yeah. are so desensitized. What happens there? Well, we have to we have to get them reconnected because that is one of the things that that entrepreneurs are plagued by. They get disconnected from life. They get disconnected from relationships and ultimately they get disconnected from themselves. Mm. So we have to take them through an exercise which includes things like identities. Um, you know, the, we, got, we got to take a look at what ultimately drives them at the end of the day or what they want to have drive them, because what's driving them now might not be healthy for them. And they realize that. So one of the exercises that we do, I do this myself, I, all our clients do this, is we always get the individuals to go away for at least a night, if they can get away for one night, but more like two or three nights somewhere away from their family, a destination, stay in a hotel in a nice place and stay away from work and reflect on what you want your life to be like in the next five to 10 years. And, and you got to remove all of the expectations. So whether you're a husband, let's just say you're a husband, you have to remove the expectation of being a husband. If you're a father, you have to remove the expectation of being a father. Now what you're doing is you're stripping away all of those other roles and expectations and truly going down to the core of who you are and aligning with your soul. 
And most people haven't done that exercise or rarely do that exercise. When you actually are able to do that, then you can layer back on, okay, what do I want to be as a husband in this relationship? Or what type of husband do I want to be? What type of father do I want to be? But we have so many of these expectations that are put on us, especially in family business. That's one of the things that kills or stunts a family business growth is that there's these unsaid expectations that people put on each other or we put on ourselves. And a lot of the time they're false, they're misconstrued, um, or they're just created uh, just out of thin air. And so we have to be able to strip those expectations and say, are they relevant? Are they even healthy? And what are the new expectations that we need to create? So that's one exercise that I recommend. Mm, it does, yeah, it does help because if you're not thinking about work for three days, you're not thinking about uh, being a husband for three days, you're not thinking about being a father for three days, what are you going to start thinking about? You're going to have to start thinking about, okay, who am I? What do I truly want? It forces you to go into that state. But even, even then, just to go a bit deeper on this, because I think it's interesting in terms of that whole exercise, what happens if people just can't even do that? Like, or, or but maybe a better way of phrasing the question is, how can you help them do that? Particularly if okay. they've had, and, and I'm thinking through, let me again, just yep. sort of paint this a bit. Again, family business, lots of what I'm hearing as you say, there's lots of different roles, lots of different expectations, maybe lack of clarity around values under the definition of values of the things that light me up and all that sort of stuff, as opposed to just words, right? All these different things, it gets very confusing. And, you know, I'm asking myself that question because I haven't done this for a while as well. If I went around and asked myself personally, what, what is it that I want? I would, I'd almost feel like I'd need to put myself into some sort of chamber for a while, which is what you're indicating, um, just to kind of get rid of the baggage before you could actually get into the purity of the question. Yeah, so that's Makes the sense. first stage. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the first stage. You got to remove all of those expectations, right? Create that empty space, as I talked about before, because that empty state uh, space is where you get creation, right? That's where you are able to align with your, your inner being, your inner soul. But we also, so through our studies as well, and through our my experience, you could say through uh, the teachings of spirituality is there's elements of inspiration that are required and ultimately we are all as human beings the most important thing is inspiration because that is our fuel right it doesn't matter how technically savvy we are it doesn't matter how much substance or wealth we have but if we're not inspired in life then we are disconnected and that inspiration there's a formula for that and we bring those elements in. For example, we, we bring in, okay, bringing back that passion. And some people are like, well, I'm not sure what I'm passionate about. Then we actually take them through exercises of thinking of, of going back into what they were like as a kid. What were the things that they were passionate about? What brings them joy? What kind of TV shows? If they didn't have, if they had five hours, what kind of TV shows would they watch? Right? All these kinds of things. Then we talk, then we bring in the other elements such as purpose, for example. Power, which is your strengths. So we have these different, there's 10 different elements that we take them through. And what ends up happening is when you, when they actually self-reflect, when a person self-reflects on those 10 elements, what ends up happening is that there's an intersection. They will find that, okay, these 10 elements will intersect, or maybe there's a complete gap, or maybe some of those elements are completely missing, are completely missing altogether, and they need to figure those out or establish those. For example, passion a lot of people are disconnected because they've lost their passion they just don't know what their passion is anymore or the passion that they used to have isn't the passion that they have today a purpose is another one that's another common factor right and so we have to identify those 10 elements and most people when they go through uh, because we do workshops on this specifically around inspiration and these 10 elements there's a huge 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 you can say uh, um, amount of uh, ahas and eye-opening moments for these individuals because they come out and now they know in these 10 elements, it's like a checklist, what they need to focus on and where they're missing or what's actually misaligned in their life. So once people go through those, then they're actually be able to do that. And so I'm going to say it all comes back to inspiration, which is ultimately energy. And that energy drives you. Now there's something simple. You, you talked about purpose, you talked about, you know, the why and Simon Sinek's, you know, famous book around the why yeah. he was, he was, you know, he was ahead of his time from the perspective of 
he talked about the purpose and the why before the science actually came out. The science has actually now shown that when you have a strong purpose, there's more neurotransmitters, the ones that you need to drive more energy and inspiration in your body. And so having a strong purpose is one of the strongest factors that actually creates more energy in your mind, your body, and your soul. So when someone asks me, how do I have more inspiration? How do I have more energy? It's to bump up that purpose or actually update it. Because a lot of the time, our purpose can be outdated. Or, we yeah, might or even, even forgotten to some extent. Like, you know, you might start something with a very, very clear intention or purpose. And, you know, through attrition and through time and everything else that goes on, you kind of forget why you started. I see that happen all the time. Very common with entrepreneurs and business owners. Yeah. And same thing in family businesses, because one person's, if you have two founders, a husband and a wife, for example, or two brothers or two sisters, whoever it might be, if their purposes don't align or continue to align, the business then starts to, it, it becomes misaligned. That's let's when talk, you have let's more talk more about that now. We, we sort of sowed the seed of this at the beginning of our conversation and then got beautifully sidetracked into, <laughs> into some fantastic stuff. But I do yeah. want to kind of touch on the differences here because you know, as I said, you, you do a lot of work with family businesses. Let, let's kick off with a definition. What is a family business? Well, family business, from my definition, is a business where, that is owned by an individual that's privately owned. Yeah. And there's a factor of family involved. And so that factor could be, hey, look, like, for example, I have a business, one of my businesses, let's just say I'm the sole owner, but the decisions I make are influenced by my family. Okay. So could that, is that technically in the realm of family business? No, but I consider that a family business, right? But a family business is technically considered where one or more people in, or I'm going to say two or more people in a family either own or work in the business. So that's technically a family business. Okay. So you've got effectively the family dynamic in whatever way we define that coming into play here versus yep. a corporate or private equity company like I, which might have elements of that, but the entity is definitely not solely that. What, what are some of the key characteristics then, the differences when you're in that environment versus some of the other ones we've mentioned? Well, ownership is one of them because you typically have family members owning the business and predominantly most, most if you take a look at it, especially in Canada and the US, most of the, uh, the private sector businesses or privately owned businesses are family owned. Mm. And the US, I believe it's up to 90%. Like it's a significant amount. So they have a huge impact. And I think over 50% of the GDP in the US is, is from family-owned businesses in the private sector. Like it's, it's phenomenal. So there's, sorry, I'm going to go back to that question again, specifically. Could you, yeah. could you please clarify? Yeah. So, well, when I say characteristics, I'm also talking about dynamics to yeah. some extent. So it's probably more the fact of if, and, I'm, and it comes back a little bit to the emotional piece we touched on beforehand. Like, you know, my, my feeling is that if I have more family involvement in my business or businesses, then I'm going to have different levels of emotional decision-making maybe around that. Oh, absolutely. Because now you're, it's, it's, it's actually really interesting when you see what ends up happening in a family business. As soon as you add a second person in, whether it's an owner or someone that works in the business, the decision-making changes. And this is just human nature yeah. because we, and there's, and it all goes back to those expectations now, right? Because now you're expected to make decisions based on the family and not just yourself. And so that changes the dynamic. So it is, it adds a different layer. So being an entrepreneur, obviously we know that that's tough. Being in a family business is even tougher and there's a lot of pros to it, right? There's a lot of pros. For example, people, they share their resources. They're able to make quicker decisions, typically in family, in family enterprises or family businesses. And so they're able to do things that other businesses are not. But if you don't manage that family layer effectively, it adds a whole different level of complications and conflict that actually can ruin or destroy a business. Now, I, I want to put it on a positive note. You know, if you do it well, you can outpace your competition by far. But if you don't do it well, you're going to go the other way. Got it. And, and because we touched on the whole mindfulness part of or the aspect of that and, and to some extent, identity values, do you see, I mean, obviously that's important in business in general, but is part of the reason why you have found that you support family businesses a lot is because those dynamics just become more intensified. Oh, absolutely. There's a different layer that allow us to have a competitive advantage. 
and be able to service our clients. And it is around this whole psychological element. You know, what are the, the, the challenges that happen in families? And how do you address those challenges? Because those challenges stop or slow down those, those business leaders from making decisions. And they know it at the end of the day, day too. So we've come in, for example, when other advisors have come in, and it, it's, it's kind of funny because we get this quite often where they, they've said, hey, yeah, we worked with this advisor. We spent half a million dollars and we couldn't execute a single thing. And it's because that advisor <laughs> was working on the business and forgetting that there's a whole family dynamic behind the business. And the reason why, just like I said before, the reason why they're not able to execute is because we are creatures of emotions. And so they're not able to help these family members deal with those elements because once you get those elements aligned, ultimately it's alignment of those elements. If you can get the family members aligned from a relationship standpoint, from a vision standpoint, from a value standpoint, um, decision-making standpoint, how they're going to make decisions, guess what? Now the strategy becomes that much easier to execute. And so if you don't, and this is, this is my, you can say two cents to people out there working with family businesses, if you're focusing strictly on the family, on the business side, it's not going to go anywhere. Because yeah, that's ninety percent of the complexities on the family. You remind me, there's a, there was a quote by a guy called Lou Gershner who headed up IBM for many years, and he said, "I think it was something like culture eats strategy for breakfast, right?" And and you know, obviously the point there being that you know you can have the best plan in the world, but if no one's going to implement that plan effectively, then you know you're not going to get anywhere. Now, but obviously both of the the elements are important, but what you're saying here is to some extent that that family dynamic adds another layer of complexity. That if that's not addressed right, then, then it doesn't matter about the plan, right? The plan yeah. might, it still might work, but it's not going to be as maybe optimized or successful as it could be. Yeah, because at the end of the day, and, and you know this just as well as I do, Nick, it's all about execution. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, if yeah. you, if, you know, an average strategy well executed can far perform, you know, an amazing strategy that's poorly executed. And so this is, this is one of the things that I think um, family businesses can actually excel in because if they get aligned, they can execute far better because now they have common interests, right? Now, as, as siblings or as, as a husband and wife, now your, your family's involved. You have a lot more at stake. And so when people are actually have that motivation, the why behind that, they actually become that much more powerful in decision-making and growth, for example, and they reinvest in the business, right? That's the other thing too. And you see this is when, when you know, a lot of people may take their salaries, and spend it the way they spend it in family businesses what typically ends up happening until they get to a certain level is they continue to reinvest in the business and that allows the business to to flourish and grow now i don't always recommend it because you still have to live your life i've seen complications too on the flip side where people haven't taken salaries and what ends up happening is when there's conflict or whatever now there's an issue right because there's a conflict someone wants to exit the business or someone wants to get their share of salary or they don't feel like they're being valued, they got bigger issues now as a result of that. I'm starting to sort of realize as we have this conversation that you're operating at probably the, the much tougher end of the world than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you no. know what? We're, people typically call us in when there's, when there's a challenge because when everything's going well, you know, what's, what's the point of bringing someone in? You don't need to, you don't even think about it. But when things are slowing down or, or when things aren't going so well, that's when people start to say, okay, we, we need to fix this. Got it. Let me ask you this, this last question, because I think it's really interesting. So when you get brought in, what's, and I, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask for the typical situation, even though I absolutely know that there's no typical situation, but an example of, of where it's not working and where you've identified where the core issue is and, and started to optimize it. Just, just give us a bit of a story around that. Oh, sure. So um, I'll, I'll give you one example. Working with a, a family mm -hmm. who has the next generation that's about to take over the business. And that individual, there's a big question of Mark, whether that person is fit to take over the business. Got it. Succession, okay, so basically, the TV show. Yeah, succession. That's, <laughs> that's probably one of the biggest challenges because there's a huge, what ends up happening in most family businesses is that there's an avoidance of conversation. There's an avoidance of the tough conversations. And there's a lot of assumptions that are being made. Well, so-and-so will end up taking over the business or, uh, you know, as parents, our kids are going to take over the business, right? That's the assumption that's being made, even though the kids may not want to take over the business or the flip side, the kids 
are assuming that they're going to get the business or one of the kids is, is assuming that they're going to take leadership of the business and their sibling is not going to, or you have an outside, for example, um, sibling who's not even in the business that has seen the business greatly accelerate. And now they want a piece of the pie, even though they have had no contribution wow. in the business at all. And I'm not kidding you. These are the things that challenge family businesses more than the actual technical aspect. And I would say, again, you say, you know, I work on that tough end of the spectrum. I would say yes. And the reason is, I would say 90% of family businesses out there are struggling with those challenges. And there's a reason why they, there's a saying, you might have heard this, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in the family business space. And what does that mean? That means that the founding generation had to roll up their shirt sleeves to, to and that put in the blood, sweat, and tears to establish that business. And so they had to sacrifice. They had to suffer to do that. And what ends up happening is that by the time it gets to the third or fourth generation, they have to do that over again because in between, one of the generations has thrown all that wealth away or screwed it up or there's been conflict. So they're, every so often, every few generations, they have to start over from scratch because you know, excuse my language, they can't keep their crap together. Well, this is, this is where it segues a little bit to my world, because again, in, in the, uh, the PE realms, like we, we, we play around with this concept called the prize or the prey, or you may never have heard this before. It's actually coming out in my book soon, but the whole context being, do you want to be the prize or do you want to be the prey? Because from my perspective, I look at a business like that, that has everything going for it, except the family dynamic is maybe broken. And for me, that's prey because I can yes. take all the foundations, all the good stuff, all the customers, all the assets that have been created and, you know, with some careful transition can put a different team in. Right. So terrible, right? I should go to hell for that, but <laughs> that's the way well, it works. It's the I mean? reality of it. It's yeah. a reality out there. And we know that a lot of business, majority of businesses don't sell and they don't sell for the value that they could have sold for and let alone increasing the value. But this is something that I think a lot of family business owners need to understand is that there's so much opportunity out there if you actually do it properly and actually get the proper structure in place, get the proper you know, employment uh, contracts, for example, for family members, have the conversation around values. If you do it properly, you can actually greatly accelerate. I would say, um, you know, what you explained there, it's unfortunate, but it is a reality. I see that very, very often where the family can't get their stuff together. And what ends up happening is someone comes along and picks them off at a discount yep. or picks off the assets um, at a significant discount. So that is the reality that happens in a lot of family businesses. Yep. So the, the lesson here is you want to be the prize. <laughs> oh, exactly. And, and you can, and, and I'm fully, you know, this is, and we've seen a lot of our clients, we've seen a lot of other family members of our business out there be the prize because when they do align, and I say this because I grew up in a family business, I've seen this, is you can significantly outperform your competition when your family is fully aligned behind the business. Love it. Well, we are at time, sir. So we, we covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, I thought we were going to cover one thing and we went all over the place. <laughs> oh, well, you know, that's, that's probably my mind, right? Well, no, it's funny, like I like it when conversations kind of go off in different things because generally speaking, we, you know, for everyone listening, there is a bit of a plan before we have these conversations, but you don't make the plan take over where the, the natural, you know, flow is going. So that was, that was awesome, particularly the stuff I think on intention and, and mindset and mindfulness, right? You know, all those sort of areas because, again, I don't think people talk about it, but they talk about it in a tripe way but it is super critical. So my final question for you, sir, is where can people learn about what you do, your programs? I know you have, you've definitely got one book and you've got another book coming out soon. Isn't that right? Yeah, I've, um, so I have a couple of books out there, um, but we have a new one coming out and that's going to be released in the fall of 2023. Cool. Uh, people want to uh, connect with me. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's probably where I'm most active. Um, or you could always send me an email. So you could send it at team at sellwealthy.com. Fantastic. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, sir, and great, great, great getting to know you over these last few months as well. Uh, I want to wish you all the very best with it. Yeah, thanks, Nick. I appreciate you having me. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, 
then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.